welcome back to the Gnostic Informant, and you are about to attain true Today I got Dr. Rob M. Price back for the hundredth time now, <laughs> hundredth and counting. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about some some evolution of God, Yahweh, the uh, the forms that he takes, and um, all that. And the idea that we got this from is from the late and great God and Anatomy by Dr. Francesca. Sort of a, a hot a hot topic right now. This book is people who are into this type of, you know, like what we're into. Like we talk about religion. We talk about, uh, you know, atheism. We talk about scripture. This is just right up our alley. So everyone, this is like a big thing right now. And I, I'm, I'm not fully finished with it yet, but I've read a lot of it. And I actually just got to the the last part where it it's just we're going to we're going to talk about that, but I want to hear what you think about it first, and then we'll we'll get to that later. So go ahead. Well, I think it's uh, really refreshing and incisive, and it raises in the most acute fashion the question of whether the God of the Bible is the Christian deity and uh, implies pretty well that uh, no, it's not. Um, oh boy, what's his name? Um, Jack O'Garica in South Africa. He's written a couple of things about this, saying that it's, it's odd that certain apologists and debaters will use philosophical arguments for a creator kind of like, or including Aquinas's so-called proofs for God, uh, and uh, Aquinas admitted that um, even if you thought he had proven that there had to be a creator or first cause, and he thought that much was cogent, he said that will not tell you what you need to know to be saved, to, to go to heaven and so on. Uh, you need faith to grasp knowledge that has been revealed, but not deduced or discovered by human beings. For instance, that uh, God is a loving and just person, that there is a trinity within the Godhead, uh, that uh, God has a plan of salvation, etc., etc., that these things you need to know because they're true and, and um, your eternal destiny depends on them, but uh, you can't just philosophize your way to them. Uh, he said Aristotle had uh, reasoned out anything and everything anyone would need to uh, know what the good life is and to live it. He, he was no uh, you know, bone-rattling uh, heathen uh, witch doctor or something uh, that Aristotle was you know he's the most intelligent guy uh, that ever lived aside from Aquinas himself and uh, uh, and yet uh, Aquinas did not pretend you could reason your way to the message of salvation you just had to believe that because it was revealed I mean the whole idea was that you couldn't have established it by reason so uh, you know you, you can't use reason to accept it uh, even if you found there were certain incomprehensible elements of it 
uh, well, that's only to be expected because you're talking about the infinite, eternal being, omniscient, omnipresent. You, you can't really uh, describe that uh, even. So uh, you can't know that or understand it, but you can accept it uh, by faith. And so it makes enough sense, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, uh, the, the biblical symbols and, and uh, stories and so forth are true as far as they go, and that's true enough. One day we shall know as we are known, but now we see in a glass darkly. It may surprise some Bible readers to <laughs> realize that here, um, Paul, whom they think, oh, if I could only sit down and talk to this guy, all my questions would be answered. It reminds me of a scene out of Bergman's The Seventh Seal where the knight of faith, Antonius Block, is in the confessional in this church, and he, he thinks he's talking to a priest, but it's the grim reaper who's dogged his steps through the whole adventure, and uh, he and, and um, the plague is raging, and Antonius Block says, I want knowledge, not faith or surmise, but soon I'll know. You'll be death. You'll be revealing your, your secrets to me. And then uh, death says to him, what makes you think I have any secrets to reveal? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, that's kind of like this. Paul, you know, the one we figure, oh, he knew everything. He says, oh, look, I don't know uh, anything. I uh, Hardly. It's just enough to uh, make contact with Christ. Well, uh, okay, there's a gap there. But... Um, maybe there is a bigger gap than Aquinas thought, because when you look at the Old Testament God, or even the New Testament one, you're dealing with somebody like Zeus or Odin, uh, somebody like uh, Baal and Marduk in, uh, in, ancient, uh, in the ancient Middle East. And that's really what um, Francesca, oh boy, uh, Stra Stravacopolu, I'm not sure I can get that right. Uh, but that's what she really drives home. She says, let's look at the cognate literature, the stuff that was written the same time as the Bible, if not earlier, and describes the gods in uh, similar terms at a little bit greater uh, depth uh, that enable us to show what it means in the Bible when it speaks of God uh, having a son, a co-regent, um, having uh, vengeance and wrath, uh, love for his favorites, uh, having a body, uh, going one place and another, coming from Seir in Edom to uh, Israel to fight the enemies of Israel. Uh, she's saying that the ancients didn't take this as a uh, metaphor. They didn't allegorize it until very late in the game right. when you had the Stoic philosophers in Greece and Rome saying, well, you know, we want to honor the myths our ancestors passed on to us, but if we do that, we've got to allegorize them because if you take them literally, they're not very edifying. 
you've got uh, Zeus and Apollo who are rapists and and so forth. Uh, this this can't be. This isn't what we we ought to hold up. I mean, your God has to be your moral paragon, right? Uh, but these guys don't fill the bill. Maybe these are. This is just picture language that symbolizes. Uh, the ravishing of the soul by God, uh, the Im the impregnation of the mind by wisdom. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. And uh, the some of the Jewish rabbis borrowed this to uh, make bad texts of the Bible look good. Philo of Alexandria, for instance, and uh, Origen and others who admitted that there were hundreds or thousands of absurdities historically in the Gospels if you took them literally, but you're not supposed to. In fact, those, uh, those contradictions stumbling blocks should be little red lights going off telling you look deeper. This can't be what you're supposed to take away from this. Look more deeply. Well, of course, there's a big problem with that. You're using the text as a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, and um, uh, John Calvin tried to deal with this, you know, I'm leaning on the everlasting arms. What, God has physical limbs? Uh, well, no, uh, that's the language of accommodation. He said that uh, it, it's accommodated. It's like the old uh, progressive revelation thing. Yeah, humans have no real basis for understanding the deep things of God. So you use these metaphors, these images. And uh, Anselm went so far as to say, yeah, that implies uh, not just anthropomorphism. The idea of God having a humanoid body—that's that's allegorizing. But but uh, what about God's being anthropopathic? That is having human emotions. Well, that's really not much better. And Anselm says God cannot be said to love us. Aquinas gets in on this too. He says we can speak of God by analogy. Uh, it's not really the same thing, but it's sort of on a scale, like when you say your your pet loves you. Well, in a way, uh, certainly he or she does. Uh, they're wagging their tail when you come in at the end of the day and all that, but it doesn't have the complexity and the depth of uh, humans loving each other. Well, in the same way, on the other side, the other end of the spectrum, God cannot be said to love us the way we love each other, but it's it's somehow on the same spectrum. Uh, it's beyond us at the moment. But uh, I, I personally think that's a kind of a shell game. And, and the fact that you're talking about such a vast difference, I don't know that you're really talking in terms of analogy anymore. It's really equivocation. You see this at its worst when Calvinists say, well, yeah, God could have stopped Hitler, but he didn't. Uh, God is uh, predestining people to hell. How can you say God is good? Well, he is, but good isn't the same thing for him as it is for us. Yeah, if we could go back in time and assassinate Hitler, we ought to do it. Well, God wouldn't have any problem, but he didn't do it. He's not doing it. Uh, so is he not good? Well, no, you just don't understand what it could mean for God. You know, my ways are as high above yours as the heavens are above the earth, God says in Isaiah. That's pretty far. 
uh, is there any common ground, really, if you're willing to say that God cannot be blamed for these things? Uh, and uh, so it, it, you just, I don't think, can, can bridge the gap. Uh, you can't really say God loves us. Can God even be affected by us. God seems to be angry or sad in the Bible. Uh, don't grieve the spirit of God and all that stuff. Uh, is that, what What would that mean? Because don't we also say, if we start doing philosophical theology, that God has the property of aseity, that is, ah, say, in itself that God uh, is completely self-sufficient and invulnerable so that nothing can affect him. Well, <laughs> you know, if that's the case, I, you know, I don't see how God could take umbrage at anything that we microbes down here do. And so you're really, you, the, what did Pascal say? The God of the philosophers is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, Stavrikopoulou is making, he's, she's rubbing our noses in that because there's no reason to say that the Baal worshipers uh, were philosophical in their understanding. No, they just believed in these ancient uh, embodied gods filled with emotions and ambitions and jealousies. Uh, no reason to think that the biblical God is any different. Uh, and uh, that really uh, is, you're not talking about that in Christian theology. And, and I would go further. Of course, this isn't her subject, so I'm not blaming her for not going further. But I think you can see where the trajectory is leading, that um, the God of the philosophers is not the God of Christian theology either. Christian theology is a kind of a transitional form uh, of the evolution of God into his final logical form, which is uh, Brahman without qualities, Saguna Brahman, that the non-dualist Hindu philosophers and mystics talked about, Gaudapada and Shankara and so on. Uh, they, they said that the uh, ultimate being itself is Brahman. Uh, indefinable because if you can define something that means you can trace out its limits right it's this and not that but if you're talking about infinity it cannot be defined or characterized and shankara knew that he said now the we live in the realm of samsara of maya an illusion it's kind of like a vivid dream within the dream it's reality and that's the way we perceive it, because the plain, blinding light of Brahman is refracted uh, before we see it, like white light split up into colors in the spectrum. And so we are seeing a world that is not ultimately real, and it too has its God, what the Gnostics call the Demiurge. Right. That is a personal creator who does miracles and answers prayers. That's the creator Brahma, another version of the same word, or they call it Saguna, uh, Saguna Brahman, Brahma, Brah, Brahman with 
qualities. I'm sorry. The ultimate is is Nirguna Brahman. I got that wrong a moment ago. No qualities, no attributes cannot be distinguished in any way. All is one. And salvation consists in snapping out of the coma uh, of the, the dream world of Maya. And then you'll see time is an illusion uh, that that uh, Brahman does not think thoughts because that would imply limitation. If I'm thinking of writing an article or if I'm a scientist trying to put together a formula, I think, well, now this has got to lead to this somehow. How does this grow out of this? What would I have to do to get from A to B uh, and, and so forth? If God does that, if he says... I, that he has a plan of salvation. We're talking about the demiurge Brahma. Uh, he's a person, not the absolute. And uh, and Saint Augustine nearly came to this point when, under the influence of Platonism, he began to say, well, "You know, God exists outside of space and time." People love to say that uh, even now, um, that it they think it helps discussing predestination. And so, oh, for God, it's an eternal now. Uh, it's, it's all happening. If you're saying that, you're saying God is, uh, is uh, Nirguna Brahman. You're saying that the realm in which a God or human beings think out plans and have intentions to do things and act doing something they had not done a moment before. You're talking about Maya. Uh, th this is a dream reality below the, the true reality of the divine, uh, beyond personality. And uh, that's what I think Christian theology ultimately demands, but only a few dare to touch the ark. Paul Tillich was one. Uh, and, and implicitly, St. Anselm was, but they just couldn't get away from the mythology. And so there's like a kind of double think. Uh, and uh, if it helps make it sound more respectable, they'll go full tilt into the philosophy. But in terms of religious life, it's all the make-believe of uh, getting God or Jesus to answer your prayers like uh, writing a letter to Santa Claus. Uh, Tillich said that's blasphemy, that's superstition. And so I say that that is the direction she is pointing us in, and her point is well taken. Uh, so she's really opening Pandora's box. And uh, I'd love to hear what uh, you know, what traditionalist believers, and I don't just mean fundamentalists, I mean intelligent theological um, Orthodox Christians think. Oh, yeah, one last thing. Oh, I, I mentioned this in my review. Have Christians gotten beyond thinking that God has a body? Well, Stavrakopoulou says they kind of gave, uh, they kind of uh, salvaged that with the doctrine of the Incarnation. God has a body insofar as he became a human being as Jesus. But other than that, well, no, he doesn't have a body, though they still say he has a personality. Well, let me ask them, what is it they picture when uh, they say that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father? 
all right, incarnation, I get that. They, I guess they believe Jesus is up there like flying saucer religions say, that he's on Jupiter or something. Some of them actually say that, Unarius Society, people like that. Uh, but who's he sitting next to? That Doesn't that demand that you think God has a behind that is sitting on a seat just like, I mean, that's what Joseph Smith thought. Uh, is that what Christian theology says? Because if so, there's been almost no advance beyond the Baal-type theology. And by the way, speaking of what you just said, that was a perfect thing for you to end on because I, what she touches on in the book as well, what I'm about to talk about, comes from Exodus 33. And this answers mm -hmm. that question. And um, so in, in verse 7, it talks about Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside of the camp, distance away, calling it the tent of the meeting. Mm. So he, this is where he met with Yahweh. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of the meeting outside of the camp. Whenever mm. Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances of the tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. Moses went into the tent. The pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. What? That's crazy. And then while the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped. So they were physically looking at something and worshipping it. Now, it gets even crazier. Moses is talking to Yahweh face to face. It actually says this. It actually says this in verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Now, I'm curious what the Hebrew says there. But this is what the translation is, face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Clearly, that's what it says. And then, then he goes, wait for that motorcycle to go by. So then it goes, uh, he says, to, he says to, to Moses, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, Yodi Vavhe, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Say, so I'll do it. Say, he's like, I'm doing what I want. But he said, "You cannot see my face, nor for no one may see me and live." What? That's physical. That's not a. That's not outside of space and time. He's saying, if you look at me physically, you will die. There's evidence right there. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Moses can see his back. That is the weirdest passage probably in the entire Old Testament, maybe the whole Bible, if you ask me. But what it tells you is that, tells you that Yahweh has a body and he's a physical mm -hmm. entity that can be seen. Moses saw him face to face. That's what it says. Now, and he's a giant. Yeah. I'll now, cover you with my hand. Yeah, exactly. He's this gigantic thing. That, and if you look at my face, I'll, you'll die. And I'll have compassion on whoever I want. And I'll have mercy on whoever I want. And I will, like, he's basically saying, like, he's like a thug god. Like, he's like a tough, this is not the, oh, just believe in me and you'll have eternal life. No, he's saying, I don't care who believes in me. I'll have compassion on whoever I want to have compassion on. That's different. Now, what gets, even, what gets crazy about when you get into Christianity, because that's Judaism, but, but Judy, it, Christianity claims to be, you know, the fulfillment of Judaism. Mm -hmm. So they sort of 
they're, they're linked in that way, even though Judaism is like, no, we're not linked. But yeah, Christians are like, yeah, we're linked. So you get to Christianity, and by that point in time, you almost want to say the God of the, it's like you say religions have an evolution that that are relatable to the God of the gaps argument. So, for example, today, if you if you hear a Christian debate an atheist on the topic of does God exist, you will hear very deistic arguments coming from the Christian. It's always who was there before the Big Bang? How do we know how gravity works? How do we know all the areas that we don't know about? They'll say God is God's responsible, but in the Bible or in the ancient world, they thought, you know, it was God who causes rain. It was God who causes volcanoes. It was God who does this until they figured out that or God who causes earthquakes. They didn't know about plate tectonics, but now we know all that stuff. So now it's like, okay, God doesn't do all that, but you know, he's still behind the scenes and he's, he's outside of space and time. But Christianity doesn't really go forward in the sense of like progression on philosophy as much as I, I agree with you on that but as much as we think because christianity takes a stance of a physical resurrection now think about this the sadducees are the ancient uh they're the levites they're the priestly class they don't believe in the but physical resurrection they there are this is a more metaphysical i guess platonic view on the world to come olam haba whatever you want to call it Christianity says that physically bodies will be raised up and that heaven will be put on earth. The new Jerusalem will be on earth. So we're all the, the people who are going to get raptured are physically going to get put up into the clouds. Is what it says in the text. This is literally like, this is not outside of space and time. This is happening right here on earth. The ironic thing about this is I was watching a friend of mine who's a Christian. He has a, he has a show and a, he has a podcast. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want anyone to like show him this. He might see this. He might not. But um, he's talking to another Christian who's not as knowledgeable as him. So that, that Christian's asking him questions about stuff. And he, he's just very innocent. And he doesn't know. He doesn't know that his questions are debunking Christianity. He doesn't understand that. He asks this question. He says, what is it going to look like when a million zombies are raised up? Because it says in the text, it's all going to be in Jerusalem. They're all going to be in Jerusalem. Hmm. It's like. What is that going to look like when all the zombies are going to come out of the ground? What about the ones that are in the bottom of the ocean? What about the ones that died? What about the people who got cremated? Are their bodies going to like morph back together from like dust particles and wave? Like how's how's this going to look? And like what if they're what if you're not buried properly? Are you are you out? Of, are you shit out of luck? Like he's asking these really good questions, and the mm. person, the, my friend, who's you know he's a good guy and all, my friend just goes. You know, I never really thought about that, but I don't think it matters because we believe in God and believe Jesus resurrected. So as long as we believe, we look, he goes, look, if God figured out Noah's Ark, God will figure that out too. And I just remember mm. thinking, like, dude, you just debunked him. You don't even realize it. Like that was like, those questions were just like perfect and he couldn't answer it. And it's like, mm. and then, you, then you go to, if God can figure out Noah's Ark, he can figure this out too. But do is it Noah's Ark really happened? Like 2800 BC, we know what was happening in the world back then. We we know the Sumerians were on the rise. There was no global flood. And like, by the way, animals all up coming from one location in Turkey and spreading out magically to their habitats to make it look like that plates tectonics moved and they separated. And there's the same species here as another species here on the other side. That to me is just like. These are like really basic. I'm not smart at all. And I could get to this. I could get to that level of understanding and say, whoa, hold on a second. 
let's take a step back. Maybe this is not meant to be literal. Maybe this is meant to be, maybe, maybe Philo had it right here. Maybe Philo was with the allegories and all that. Maybe we should, but the literal Christian fundamentalists, those are the ones who, that's, that's like, those are the ones who have the, you know, it's our way or the highway, basically. Well, sometimes I, you ever notice how if somebody is interested in these questions, the, their next step will be to rationalize like the uh, uh, 18th century Protestant rationalists did that, uh, okay, the, the Moses, uh, have the Israelites walk dry shod over the, 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 uh, Red Sea. And and you'll start hearing, well, actually stuff like that has happened with uh, uh, earth tremors that uh, release pockets of gas that cause part of the earth's crust to rise up temporarily. But when it dissipates again, if any weight is put on it, it'll collapse back to the original depth. And there's a couple of documented cases from uh, modern history where we know something like that did happen. And so they'll say, well, uh, if the pillar of fire and Mount Sinai implied that, that there was volcanic activity in the area, maybe that's what happened fortuitously or providentially. And so that a land bridge rose up in the middle of the sea and the, uh, the Israelites managed to get across it but when they were done the gas had dissipated and the heavy vehicles of the egyptians being heavier caused it to collapse and drown them all well that could happen i mean stuff like that has happened but uh, that's like you're starting to feel embarrassed about the miraculous and you're, you're retreating to providence uh, and okay, God, because you, you now realize it's a problem to say God is intervening in human events because it's like cartoons, basically. And uh, so th there is that's like the first step away from it. Uh, allegorizing is another one. I think, uh, was it Mike Lycona who got into big trouble a few years ago when he said that uh, Matthew oh. 26, uh, 7 with yeah, the, the him, dead yep. coming back, that that might be My allegory. Pastor. My pastor, I was in, I was a Christian during that when that happened. My pastor was like, "White Lacona is not saved." Oh, not saved. Yeah, really. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is dude is hardcore, man. He said that mm. uh, William Lane Craig was going to hell. Oh man, he was dude. He was the hardcore fundamentalist Baptist evangelical right wing Christian you'll ever meet in your life. That I don't know if I've ever showed you the clip where he says, "If I took, if I shot all of you right now in the crowd with an AK-47." And turn the gun on my head, I'll wake up in heaven. He said that. To, to, I was right there in live, right in front of him when he said that. Eternal security. I have the clip. I could probably find it if you if you want me to show it. Yeah, sure. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, yeah, just uh, talk while I'm looking for it because I got to find it. But um, you know what I was thinking? I, actually, while I'm looking for it, I have a clip from Dr. Francesca from the book that I really enjoy. This is the one I got. This is the part that I got through today. So mm. I'm going to play this. It's a minute and 30 seconds long. So anyone, just in case anyone's wondering, start getting bored. But you won't because it's really good. But just mm. in case you're wondering, how long are they going to play this for? It's going to be a minute and 30 seconds, just so, so, so you guys know. Here we go. See? The Bible is bunkum. It's God is dead. At least 
That's what myriad thinkers and writers have told us. Since the Enlightenment, prominent Western intellectuals have not only rendered the biblical God lifeless, but reduced him to a mere phantom conjured by the human imagination. And yet the God of the Bible looks nothing like the deity dissected and dismissed by modern atheism. The God killed off by the rationalist intellectuals of Western philosophy and science is not to be found in the Bible. Their dead deity is a post-biblical, hybrid being, a disembodied, science-free, artificial intelligence, assembled over the course of 2,000 years from selected scraps of ancient Jewish mysticism, Greek philosophy, Christian doctrine, Protestant iconoclasm, and European colonialism. In the contemporary age, this composite being has become a god who forgot to create dinosaurs and failed to account for evolution, a god who allows cancer to kill children but hates abortion, a god who is everywhere and sees everything but remains absent and says nothing. But the modern god of the West and the ancient god of the Bible are very different beings. If it were the corpse of the biblical God laid out on a slab before us, what would we see? A supersized, human-shaped body with male features and shining, ruddy red skin tinged with the smell of rain clouds and incense. His broad legs suggest he was accustomed not only to striding, leaping and marching, but sitting and standing resolutely stiff, posing like a ceremonial statue. His biceps bulge. His forearms are hard as iron. There are faint indentations around his big toes, left by thonged sandals. Beneath his toenails there are traces of human blood, as though he's been trampling on broken bodies, while the remnants of fragrant grass around his ankles suggest strolls through a verdant garden. Well, I seem to have not, I don't know where I did that video, but whatever. But yeah, that's exactly what he says. He says, if I had an AK-47, I'll shoot, I would, I could kill myself and I wake up in heaven because he thinks it's all about faith. It has nothing to do with Ten Commandments, nothing like that. But um, what we just heard right there, that right there from, from Francesca is just, it's such a heavy hitting passage. It reminded me of Nietzsche. It really did. It reminded me of Nietzsche, not just because she talks about God being dead, not just because of that. That is part of it. That sort of like set the tone. But the mm. hard-hitting sentences that are just if if we saw him on a on a gurney, would we recognize him? <laughs> what? I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, that is the uh, you know how uh, in uh, movies and I I suppose in uh, real life when someone is called to identify a body and and it is the their relative or their friend or something they're they're really daunted uh, they they look away uh, and uh, so forth that's the reaction that uh, she is calling forth by saying okay the veil is taken away pay some attention to the man behind the curtain uh, the great and powerful Oz is this guy, uh, not quite what you thought. And, and that is the death of the God you, you believed in. It's like Nietzsche also in that he talks about the genealogy of morals. Yes. Like when you see how something came about, how it developed and evolved, uh, that sort of undermines the integrity of the thing. 
you, you can't know its nature without knowing its origin. And uh, to, to be able to show that it was like the doctrine of hell. You can, or afterlife at all, you can show how this gradually takes form over the centuries in the biblical tradition, and how in most of the Old Testament, nobody is even talking about salvation in the way Western religions do now. They're not even uh, cognizant of an afterlife. You just don't want to be executed or exiled or uh, whatever. I mean, there's there's no real thought of living on afterward. Uh, you just want to be an Israelite in good standing and well remembered. That's salvation. Uh, and uh, so later on, you know, why? You know, if this is true by heaven and hell, and all that, why weren't we told that in the beginning? Uh, and uh, and so yeah. it, it automatically yanks the rug out from under it. By the way, I just did a recording with. Rabbi Tobias Singer, he told me to tell you hello. Give Dr. Price my regards. He told me. Oh, to say great! That. Yeah, and, say and, hi to him next time you see him. I love that guy. He's awesome. By the way, and what you just said it has a lot to do with what we talked about. We broke down Isaiah, uh, fifty-three, the suffering servant. Broke it down for an entire hour on what it means and what, and that's coming very soon. Hmm. But I don't, I don't want to spoil that too much. I want to get to super chats, but I want to play. I'm sorry, guys. I'll play one more clip that I that I got ready for you guys. It's Nietzsche talking about this. What we're talking about is reading reading Doctor Francisco reminded me of this part. So I just pulled out. It's a one minute clip. I'm gonna play it real quick, and then I'm gonna go to super chats. So here we go. Section five. Ooh, 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 ooh. Boy, oh boy. That's how every sentence of every book from Nietzsche is. Just like. Everything is just wonderful. You just yeah. You can every single line you can take you can take it, pick it apart, and dissect it and talk about it because that's it's that deep. Yeah, yeah. He uh, really described the pathetic and disgusting modern culture in America, uh, the nanny state, the victim mentality. It's it's all just uh, a, a decay of the whole culture. Well, before you get me in trouble, let's go to super chats. <laughs> Look, I don't disagree with you on to you know that much on that, uh, but yeah, that's yeah. Let's get to uh, we have a, we have a few quite a few, so let's get to those. Doctor Bob, does Doctor Bob think Yahweh is the son of El, and could this mean that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh? It's not a bad. Ah, uh, yeah, the, I agree with Margaret Barker that. Uh... Uh, the relation between El and Baal in uh, the Canaanite religion is just the same as that between El or Elohim and Yahweh. And in fact, in some Canaanite texts, Baal is actually called Yah. And uh, so they're they're really the same uh, same being. They're both riders of the clouds that right. use lightning bolts as their weapon and so on and so on. Uh, it's, it's the same stuff. And uh, when people, I read this again today for the millionth time, somebody said, well, uh, was uh, God talking to himself when Jesus was praying? No, you, you don't get it, though. It's, it's understandable. Why not? As Margaret Barker pointed out, uh, Jesus was probably thought by the earliest Jewish Christians to be a theophany of Yahweh, like in the Old Testament, when uh, the angel of the Lord uh, appears before 
Hagar uh, or before uh, Samson's father or various others. Uh, and they don't know who it is at first because he's in human form. And then he vanishes and they say, have I really seen God and lived to tell it? Because you're not really supposed to be. But that's why he sometimes assumes human form. And Margaret Barker says, yeah, this is why in the Greek New Testament, though Jesus is constantly being called the son of, uh, of Theos, the son of God, which is the equivalent of El in the Old Testament, he is never called the son of the Kurios, the son of the Lord, because in the Greek that referred to Yahweh. Uh, and that's because he is Yahweh. And he's talking to his father, El Elyon. And I, she's convinced me. And so, yeah, that is exactly what I think, what the, the questioner asks. And it's funny because Jesus kind of does fit. I just actually debated someone on this. Um, that Jesus is sort of like, he fits this archetype that was all over the world. It's like this, this savior, son of God, dying and rising. Not of them, not all of them die and rise, but it's, there's like this light bringer, this uh, son of the morning, uh, savior, like the sacrifice or, the, you know, the passion, like, you know, Prometheus, Mithra, mm -hmm. Dionysus, Osiris, Baal, Tammuz, Tammuz was anointed and dies and resurrects. And you know what I mean? And there's all that that's Jesus fits that archetype. Yeah. Not that they're all the same. They're not all born on December 25th. They're all blah, blah, blah. no, but there's like, there is a, there is a similar common motif between them. I think. Oh, I, yes. Yeah. So let's go to the next one. Good question. Uh, let's see. I could have swore there was one right next to that one. I hope I don't pass it. Here it is. Oh, I like this question. Is a Broxus related to the term Brahmin? Thank you for that super chat, guys. Windex? I doubt it. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's a similar thing where people say that Abraham uh, is... Uh, Ah, Brahman. Yeah. But that doesn't quite make sense. I, I well, don't know. His name's was... Sarah. And then, and then Brahma has a, has a consort named Sarah Swati, the goddess. But that's that could just be a crazy coincidence. And that's a really fun coincidence, by the way. Because that yeah, is. A, it, I mean, it's plausible, one. but I don't think you could establish that through right. uh, linguistics and etymology. No. Because you're talking about Semitic languages and Brahmic or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what that. Sanskrit or whatever, like they're not even related. I, I, I don't think. I mean, I'm not a linguist. I believe not. Yeah, so that's a really big stretch, but it's funny. Abraxas. I, I was just reading about this. Okay, so Abraxas is like the demiurge in the sense that Abraxas is a time god. So Abraxas has seven letters for the seven planets, or seven days in a week. Um. The dramatria in Greek for the word Abraxas equals 365 for the solar calendar. Now, it gets even deeper. It has, there's three vowels and four consonants that can multiply and make 12 months. The three vowels is the three is the air, land, and water. I think, I think that's what it is. And then the four consonants are the four seasons. So this is the god of all reality. Like, think about it. It covers time. It covers distances. It covers the calendars. It covers like the elements. That's what Abraxas represents. So Abraxas is like a deistic god, where he just is all like that's all Abraxas is. So in the Gnostic sense, that's what the demiurge is. It's just it's like it's not like a personal savior, but like it's mm -hmm. like 
it's like it's like you 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 know what I'm talking about. Now, mm. as far as Brahmin, I think that's what you were kind of talking about. Not not I'm not talking about the words being consonants, mm. but I'm thinking the sort of the Brahma, who's like the the arc the creator the um mm. like you know the, the, you you were discussing before we even got to these super chats. That's sort of they sort of fit in that sense. They both sort of fit mm. that that uh that creator God who's like outside of space and time. Yeah, Jung says that uh, it has to do with Neoplatonism, that ultimately there is just the one, but a step down from that in the great chain of being, uh, the one splits like a cell into two, and that's Abraxas who faces both ways. Uh, and uh, and then there's more and more diversity as you go down the chain. So yeah, it's subordinate to and subsequent to the pure, undiluted oneness of being. Think of how difficult that math would have been to to try to, do, to create a Braxis. because you had to mm. figure out uh, you had to figure out some sort of it's probably some Neopythagoreans that were doing this. Mm. You, you had to figure out a way to spell a name. That has a Gematria 365 hmm. that has all these certain things about it and make it perfectly fit. I bet you hmm. there's not a lot of words you can do with that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but they did it. So that's pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. And another hmm. thing about Abraxas that blows my mind is the name actually is like some Aramaic for like the father is like the father or something. I, I can't remember what it is. Yeah, Abba. Yeah, the Abba is father, and then it means something mm. else. Abba, rocks. Uh, I can't remember. But it's mm. something to do with being, he's like the father of God. So that they're, mm. they're, they're basically saying. So that's pretty fun. It's pretty cool. Uh, Jason Jason Cachulo for the $2, says that not just evolution, but God evolution. Nice. LOL. Um, and the next one, another one by Jason Cachulo once again. He says, Gog, color of Jasper, therefore. Not sure I understand that. Do you understand that? Uh, sounds like there's more to come. Yeah, let's see what he's got. Let's see, there's another one coming. Uh, let's see. Oh, God, not Gog, he says. Okay. So, God, color of Jasper, therefore. I still don't understand that color of jasper do you understand that is that in ezekiel the when he sees uh, I, the... I was thinking of one of those like, revelation or something like that yeah but um yeah if you're in the comments if you want to i can put pull it up if you're in the if you want to clarify what that means there it is there he is uh he says nomadic step indo-european oh so he's okay so you're, you're referencing some ancient indo-european god interesting hmm. thanks for a uh, physical body that's that's crazy, man. Thank you for thank you for the super chat and thanks for watching. By the way, you rock. Um, oh, here's another Jason Cachulo again, dude. Thank you, I appreciate you. You uh, you get a medal for this. I'll send one to your house. I promise. <laughs> Wait, Brahmin, both India and Ur, influenced by step Indo-European pastoralists. Could be. Uh, yeah, that that's, I think, the theory that the original Aryans came from the Russian steppes uh, and uh, and and the the uh, astronomical references in the Rig Veda led one scholar to say that they must have been written. The, the Vedic hymns must have been written near the Arctic Circle. Uh, 
uh, and uh, and it is thought that the the uh, Aryans came and overwhelmed the Dravidians in India, uh, and uh, that the Hindu mythology is sort of a combination of both the Aryan and Dravidian. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've heard that myself. I think that's pretty spot on. Critical faculty, thank you. I'm actually going to be hosting him next month on here. I was on mm. his channel twice. Mm. Good, good friend. Uh, good day, Dr. Bob and Neil. Thanks for all your efforts. And thank you as well for the super mm -hmm. Next one is, it's is this the we read this one? Jimmy Cachulo again? You are the man. You are the, you are the number one fan of the day. He says, Jimmy Hoffa missing is resurrected. Mystery. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that's why they can't find his body. <laughs> the empty tomb. Hallelujah. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's a couple more too. Um, let's see, Jason Anderson. Off topic, what are some of Doctor Price's favorite comic book characters that aren't Superman? Uh, well, I love Spider Man, Batman, uh, Captain America, the Green Lantern, Thor. There's a whole bunch. I don't know where to stop, but I guess those would be uh, uh, the Blue Beetle. Um, I always love Batman. I like I like Batman because he's mortal and he just has to have cool gadgets to get to do what he has to do. He has to have a good suit, a good car. He's real, mm -hmm. like you know what I mean. Like he, Iron Man's like that too. I guess I don't know what it is. I like I just like that. Mm. Uh, my favorite by far are the Dark Knight trilogy from uh, oh. Nolan <sighs> with the with the Joker one. Are you kidding me? With Heath Ledger. <sighs> That's oh. one of the best movies ever made. Amazing, yeah. John Geyer, Neil's reaction. No way. Bob's retort. Yahweh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, that might... No, there's another one. There might be a couple more, actually. It's hard. Sometimes you can't see them all. It's weird. Doc Pleromanot says, Curious about, what, about the whatness of Yahweh truly is given the etymology, grammar, and other semantic features of the data are, and how do the theological philosophical assumptions bias that research? Well, uh, there have been theories that uh, Yahweh, uh, since he was a storm god, that it's supposed to be onomatopoeia for indicating the the wind uh, that uh, that he unleashes. I, I, I'm sure there are other. Uh, theoretical derivations I can't remember at the moment but in the in the Septuagint they did sort of philosophize it in the Greek so that because um, even in the Hebrew there's this attempt to um, derive Yahweh from the, the verb hayah to be uh, and um, hence the I am what I am uh, tell them I am has sent you, tell them Yahweh has sent you, as if they're all supposed to be the same thing. And uh, so um, I think the Jerusalem Bible translates it as the eternal sometimes. And uh, that's that seems to me to be a kind of Hellenistic reinterpretation of it. Uh, but as to what it originally meant, the, the, at least the one that sticks out in my mind is that it's supposed to indicate the, the blowing of the wind. Yeah. And I think that a lot of early Islamic um, 
you know, theology or philosophy on God was that the wind was like literally God moving around, like pushing stuff around. Like they thought that too. Like that's, and I, and what there, and what's so funny about that is that the, if you go back far enough, there was a God for the wind. There was a God for the water. There was a God for mm-hmm. volcanoes. There was a God for everything. And then all of a sudden the, the world starts becoming more and more monotheistic, I guess you would call it, or synchronized, whatever, whichever way you want to look at it. And now all of a sudden wind is just in, like, it's Yahweh blowing, you know, blowing, you know, whistling or whatever, or whatever he wants, whatever you want to say. Well, also the Arabs began to say that the jinn were personified uh, desert winds. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. A band of jinn, it says in the Quran. Have uh, some of them? Some of them worship Allah. It says so. I guess I guess the jinn can can repent and get saved. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I wonder if it actually says that in the Quran. I don't think. Yeah, so. it does. It says in the in the Quran. It says that the jinn. There is a band of jinn. Some of them are. Some of them actually worship Allah. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I'm not sure exactly how it says. I'm butchering it, but it's it's definitely in there. I remember seeing that mm-hmm. not too long ago. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Here's another one. Fooled by primes. Thank you for that. Super chat. Appreciate that. He says, they say God will conduct final judgment. Will he give a hundred percent attention to each person for a minimum of five minutes? Assume no multitasking. Won't the line outside court be huge? Time queue will be insane. These are good questions. If you think about it, but by that time, uh, you've, you've got all the time in the world anyway. Uh, but uh, questions like that really, when you try to picture it, uh, it's uh, like how, how does God or, or Jesus, if you want to think of him as a person still in some way, how does he manage to carry on all these prayer conversations with millions of people simultaneously? It's like uh, Santa Claus going down zillions of chimneys in in a in the space of a single night. Uh, that's one of those things where it's a myth that must imply something of a more abstract nature, though what it is, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it can just trail off into ambiguity, and that's good enough for some folks. Yeah, and um, and like I was t- like I touched on a little bit earlier, it's like when they when people talk about these things, like Noah's Ark, or when the, when Revelation happens and all the dead will be raised up. Do they actually think about how this is going to physically happen? Because the reason why I say that is because you can't just say, "Well, God can God will figure it out." He's magic. He can do what he wants. This is he created everything anyway. He can figure it out. Like, yeah, I get that cop out. I understand that completely. But then it's like, why does Noah have to build an ark then? Why does two of each animal? Because by bringing two of each animal on the ship, you are now crossing the line of saying that this is no longer a magic trick. There has to be a process, a natural process, because you need two animals to create offspring for the new world. That's a natural process. So you're saying that there has to be some natural uh, activity happening here. So what the hell, how does this happen then? How does the world get covered with water and then everything just goes back to normal? How does the dead get raised up from the from wherever they are, cremated bodies, all that? How do they just show up all in Jerusalem at one time? 
that you can't just say God's going to snap his fingers because he hasn't done it that way. He's always needed to do. He needs an army to get sent to kill the Canaanites. He needs he needs uh, um, Abraham to go do this. He needs Joseph to go do that. So he can't. He's not snapping his fingers. We don't see that happening. So that's like, I just want to. That's the question I'm trying to 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 uh, present to 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 fundamentalists. Well, they might be. They could uh, look at uh, the Valley of Dry Bones vision in Ezekiel where you actually have an almost cinematic description. The bones come together as linked skeletons again, and then muscles and sinews appear and skin covers them. Of course, it's coming out of nowhere, but it, it still is something you can picture, unlike some of this other stuff, like when it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that uh, the, uh, the the body is planted, a natural body or physical body, like a seed in the ground, but it uh, it assumes immortality, not flesh. Well, I, I don't know what that's that that's something they don't picture. But with Ezekiel, actually, there is some attempt to to imagine what you would see. Yeah. I'm going to have to get off in a minute. I have a call uh, coming in uh, from uh, Washington State. All right. Do you have? Do you want me to flip? Do you want to breeze through these, or do you got to go right now? Uh, well, in just a couple of minutes, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Just let me know. I'll just we'll just end it when you're done. Robert Herring, thanks for the two dollars. Mm. Uh, Italo, five dollars. Thank you. Says, what does Doctor Price think of theory that Jesus was Aminitas, Amentus of Galatia? I never heard that. Before. I'm not sure I remember who that is, uh, but I'm pretty suspicious of all these these theories that I I sum up saying Jesus didn't exist, but somebody did. Uh, so they're saying that the gospel Jesus didn't really exist, but really it was somehow some other guy. And there have been plenty of candidates. But uh, I I think I know what he's referring to, but it strikes me as far fetched. I yeah. believe I read the book he's talking about, but I'm not absolutely sure. Vaguely agnostic. Thank you for the 666. He says, thanks, guys. Listening to these scholars seems to leave me in an episode of Amber Says What? Daily. Keep it up. <laughs> what is that? Um, uh, You know what? I don't really know exactly, but I thought I, th I think he's talking about that show that a Amber. Um, It's like a show. Like. It's like an old show. I think it's from like Nickelodeon or something. Oh, hmm. I think that's what he's talking about. I could be wrong though. But yeah, that that either way, it's that's hilarious. Um, Doc Roman not says, so was Jesus a man bearing God or a God bearing man? Historically, it's remarkable that orthodoxy came out so strongly in favor of Christ's physis. Well, I have to assume that the reason they did it was the reasoning behind uh, Athanasius's Christology that uh, if salvation is divinization of the believer, that that's not going to happen. Christ cannot bring that about unless he is from the other side of the divine human divide. And he does partake of human nature or it's not going to work either. But the, uh, the, the divine nature uh, of, of God in Christ sort of permeates the believer through faith in the sacraments so that there will be a resurrection and a spiritual body. 
it's kind of like Tibetan Buddhism in, in that regard. Uh, so I yeah. think that's why. Yeah, you're right. It is. I, that's a good, good comparison. Uh, John Geyer, again, $5. Dr. Neil and Bob are giving us the biblical re reductio ad absurdum in spades. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's what it often comes to. Yeah. Bill Castle, thank you for the $5 super sticker. And um, I think we got them all. There's, hey, what up, Derek, Myth Vision Podcast. If you haven't subscribed, I'm sure all of you already are probably, but you never know. There could be a couple stragglers in the room. You know, you never know. Might as well give them that shout out. Uh, oh, yeah, Dr. Bob, before you got to go, everybody go and go to your Patreon. Myth, oh, it's, in the, it's in the description, your website. Right through that website, buy a book from Dr. Bob. Or join a Patreon or give them a one-time donation on PayPal. Give them something. I want to hear. I want to get a phone call from Dr. Bob tomorrow. He says, you know what? I just got a thousand. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, <laughs> give him something. Give him something. Uh, you know, he does. He, he comes out. He comes on here and gives us his time. And uh, it's valuable, valuable time. I appreciate you. And um, and uh, yeah, and that's it. And um, if anything you want to say before you got to go. Uh, just that it's a pleasure and an honor to be on with you. And uh, I, I always thoroughly enjoy it and hope everybody else does. I love it too. And uh, I'm going to play the outro and you can, you don't have to wait for that. You can just bounce. I know you got a phone call. So, um, but before we get to that outro, you know, like I always say, you have just attained true gnosis. You have just attained true gnosis. The Demiurge has no power over.